one conversation we always have after you've invested is, okay, let's talk for real. Like, what do you actually want? Because obviously when they're on the circuit trying to raise money, it's, you know, I want to grow it as big as I can. I want it to be a unicorn. I want to take it global. When we have actually invested and signed the docs, we will then say, look, what do you actually want to achieve? And then let's work towards that. Hey guys, welcome back to the Back Self Show. I am delighted to finally have on the show this week. He's a former exited founder of Design My Night. He is the founder of Horseplay Ventures and he is the host of the Pitch Deck podcast, which is sensational. It is the incredible Nick Telson. I'm delighted to have him on here. I've been bigging him up for about five minutes before the show's even started and here he is. So Nick, first question straight off the bat. Tell me about that transition from founder to full-time angel investor. How was that? And what made you do it? It's, um, yeah, it was a really interesting journey. Um, and it sort of happened while we were still founders because we'd exited um, our business at the end of 2017, but then had a two-year earnout. Um, and obviously part of the earnout is you get some cash up front. So we wanted to do angel investing while we were still finalizing the two years of Design My Night, as it were. Can I, can I dig in straight there? Can I come straight into that? Yeah. I, I don't want to forget this as we're going. So because a lot of people who are building companies, they're all excited about the exit at the end of it, you know, which is, I think, you know, there's many reasons you can start a startup. As long as you have a re good reason for it. Yeah, that's fine. Just make sure you know what it is. And one of those might be money and an exit, right? Um, and you guys had an exit, but what actually happens there? So they, they, someone's come along. I don't know who it was who bought you. And they've said like, we want to buy you for this amount of money. Talk me through that journey. Um, yeah, well, the exit journey was a bit nuts. It um, it was actually a year process for us. Um, so Andrew, who's my co-founder at Design My Night, we were very clear on how much we wanted to sell Design My Night for, i.e. how much money we both wanted to take from the company. Um, and we actually modeled that out. So we knew we had to be doing X amount of EBITDA before we were ready to sell to then hopefully sell for the price we wanted to then get the money we wanted. And you were, uh, would you reserve yourself as a software business? Yeah, um, most people actually just think of us as the B2C site, Design My Night, but actually yeah. Our, yeah, our golden egg was definitely software. So we had um, restaurant software that we sold to restaurants and bars. We had ticketing software that we sold to events, and then we actually had uh, e-vouchering software for the restaurant and bars as well. And your valuation, you were basing off EBIT, which is earnings before interest and tax for people who are listening, uh, before rather than on revenue. Mm -hmm. And th that's quite that's quite counterintuitive because normally, if you're a software business, you inflate it massively by basing it on revenue. Yeah, we wanted to be realistic, so we when we lined up the, the exit, which I said took a year, we knew we would have some industry buyers that just wanted us and wouldn't actually really look at revenue in EBITDA. We also knew there'd be some PE or private equity that would have looked quite conservatively at the numbers. But then we knew there was some more, let's just say, realistic players who actually bought us in the end that would give us a very good multiple on EBIT because they were not only buying our business to fit into their business, but they were buying our profit as well. Um, so from the early days, we always wanted to build a very profitable company. And our, our thesis was, well, if we can build something that's very profitable, we will definitely be able to sell it versus yeah. let's just build revenue, 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 and hope that industry player desperately wants to buy us. So I think we were always quite conservative in our approach as a business. 
that's insane. I mean, it's essentially great foresight for you there. When um, industry buyer, what does that mean? So, so for us, a design my night, the like the obvious acquirers, you know, would have been Open Table, TripAdvisor, um, Booker Table. Open Table. Open Table's bigger than you, is it? Unfortunately, they're they're a billion dollar company. Are so, they? Uh, yeah, yeah. I yeah. had no idea. Uh, so they were bought by Booking.com a while ago, actually. Um, so they were originally called Top Table, a UK company, and we I were Top Table, yeah. Really fortunate to have met the chairman of Top Table because he knew our chairman. So really, in the early days of Design My Night, we had lunch with the chairman of Top Table. And he gave us some like amazing advice on the the bookings model, which is one we eventually went down, and then yeah, became a big competitor of Open Table in the end. Okay, so that's interesting. So and and then they they what they so they they just drop you a note and they're like, hey Nick, you guys are causing us too much problems because you're stealing all our customers. We would like to buy you. Yeah, I think yeah, that's the dream. I think that's what people might see on TechCrunch. Um, as I said, ours was a year. Process. But TechCrunch, but TechCrunch like... is always true, Nick. How dare you even suggest oh, yeah, that's sorry, not how course, reality course, works? Of course, that's Outrageous. the dream, TechCrunch. Yeah, we we had a broker. We went through a formal process. We engaged lots of different potential acquirers. So you went out to market. Yeah, we put the for sale sign. Wow. So you you and your what's your co-founder's name? Andrew. Andrew, so you and Andrew decided your exit amount, you know, X squillion pounds or whatever it was. And you were like, I need this much money to buy the life that I want, which I'm assuming is yeah. just to buy freedom, right? That's what you're doing, right? Yeah. That's what you wanted. And then so you said, right, once we got EBIT to the point where we were worth that much, then you went down that path. Yeah. So, we, well, we did it a year before. So we were forecasting a year out saying, okay, well, if everything carries on as it is, we should hit X EBIT. So we know we'll be definitely worth at least Y. And if we get at least that, we'll have hit the target we wanted. So it was a very strategic. And we actually, when we took on angel investment, we said to them, we're going to sell in five years. And we sold five years and like 10 days. Well, I mean, look, fist bump <laughs> to you there, mate. That, that's a really interesting um, perspective. And so now you've gone into horseplay, great name. Is that what you preach to your, to your investments and to your startups? Yeah, it's difficult. Like we, yeah, I think one thing, one conversation we always have after you've invested is, okay, let's talk for real. Like, what do you actually want? Because obviously when they're on the circuit trying to raise money, it's, you know, I want to grow it as big as I can. I want it to be a unicorn. I want to take it global. So, you know, when we have actually invested and signed the docs, we will then say, look, what do you actually want to achieve? And then let's work towards that, you know, because the strategy you set out from going global to being a $500 million company to one selling for 10, 50 million um, is very, very different. So I like to understand from the off what strategy they want to go down or at least start to go down and aim towards. And then you might pivot, you know, if things are going great and you're loving it, then you might want to take it global and shoot for the stars. But I do like to just understand like the genuine what's behind the scenes for the founder. You know, do, 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 do you have a family? You're going to have a family because, it, you know, if you are, are you going to be ready to work 20 years if you want to take it to like IPO and whatever? Um, you know, just really understand what they want. And then as an angel, I see that as my job to then help them achieve what they want. And if they achieve that, I should be happy as an angel as well. Yeah, I like that a lot. Do you think that you need to be 
an experienced founder to really be a true value add angel? Not a founder because I think different angels can add different things. You know, I think what you want to do is get a selection of angels with different skill sets. So, you know, some angels might be ones that aren't founders, but have great contacts in the industry that you work with. And I might not have any contacts in that industry. So I can help you be a founder, but Sarah over there can help you get a hundred deals done. Um, so I think what you need to do with angels is think strategically about the team almost and think, okay, well, I know I can go to, to Nick to help with founder stuff and I can go to Sarah to get some intros and I can go to Paul to help me raise my series A. Um, and I think that's, that's what you really need to do. And you need to push back angels and, and ask angels what they will bring to the table as well. Like, don't be scared to ask them what they're going to offer um, because it's, it's as much an interview of them as they're interviewing you, as I see it. I think there's a massive hack there as well. Um, I think it's because I agree with you entirely, but there's, I found that if you push back on an angel about what they're going to bring to the table, they almost seem like they're more likely to invest because you create that bit like, wait, am I missing out on something really good here? Because normally people yeah. just come in here and just flirt with me for an hour. But now they're like, yeah, they're asking me some questions. And I say to people all the time, like, yeah, just put a bit of pressure on that person. It's people who do it to me. When people are pitching to yeah. me and they like, they say, well, Tom, what are you going to bring to the table? I'm like, well, <laughs> how dare you? I thought you just wanted my money. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, it's, it's, uh, it's good. And then you don't want to lose out because you feel like, ah, what if they don't think I'm good enough? No, I love that. So you personally, like what, what gets you excited when you're investing? Because I, you know, I was looking at your portfolio. It's diverse. Yeah, like what gets you going? Well, number one, the obvious answer is the founder or founders. Like I really need to just get, and I, and I think that's one of our strengths as exited founders is I, I think I know within five minutes of speaking to someone whether I think they've just got it like got what it needs to be a founder because I know what it needs to be a founder. And I just get that sense. And what is that? One thing I think that people forget, and it might not be your skill, but every founder needs to be able to sell their own product, at least for the first six months. Um, yeah. And as a founder, you're constantly a salesperson, whether it's press, whether it's customers, whether it's podcasts, whether it's raising money. Um, so I'd like to see at least one of the founders having that, you know, to quote an Arsenal player, and I'm a Spurs fan, that Vava Voom, um, who just, it, you know, just really like, you know, the, the excitement flows off of them. Um, and if, if one of the founders doesn't have that, that does worry me. Um, and then it's, it's that, that just internal determination to succeed. Um, and I don't know how you sense that, but I, I think I can get the measure of someone. You know, there's a lot of noise at the moment about uh, well-being and, and all of that, which is super important. But I'm also a big advocate to cut through the BS. And while, yes, it is extremely important to look after your own physical and mental well-being, the old school part of me is also like, well, yes, you do. But actually, whatever you read you will need to work your ass off for at least the first year to get it off the ground. And I haven't spoken to a successful founder that has worked nine to five and then meditated and then done a run, then gone to the gym. Um, you know, that first year to get it off the ground 
you just have to throw everything into it. And I, I want to see that dedication when I speak to founders. I love that, Nick. And I'm so glad that you, you talk about the opening because it's something that I worry about. Like when I talk to you know, other founders and they come on the show and they're like, yeah, you've got to look after that. Yeah, you do have to look after yourself. But if you're not grafting and you're not really putting time in, you're not going to get there. No. You know, and it's like um, people hide behind that and excuses. That I'm not saying it's an excuse to, to people. that mental health is, and well-being is essential. You have to maintain that. But if you think that that means you can't work hard, yeah, if you think that means that, that you know, if it doesn't work out, like it's not true. You have to put the graft in. You have to be willing to go that extra mile because that's what a founder is, right? Yeah, you're, well, you're everything. So at the start, you are sales, marketing, PR, finance, operations. Um, and, if, and unfortunately, there aren't enough hours in the day to wear all of those hats. So that is why founders will work seven days a week non-stop and i'm not saying it necessarily is healthy um i know i pushed myself to my limit back in the day when well-being wasn't really talked about but mm. unfortunately that is what you need to do to get something off the ground and that's why it is so tough and that's why not everyone can do it um and that's why you get the rewards if you do succeed because i don't think people can appreciate that haven't done it how much hard work it really really is yeah, I think it's true. I think also there's something as well, isn't there, where um, I'd love to get your view on this. I hate people telling me that I should take time off because I love working, right? And it's like you have this almost like this, this, this I think it's almost like um, toxic well-being where people are like, Tom, you need to take a little bit of time off. And I'm like, I don't want to. I like pitching. I like working. I hate three-day weekends. They're the worst <laughs> thing ever. I'm like, what am I going to do? They're like hanging out with your kids. I hang out with my kids all the time. They can, <laughs> like, it's so annoying. Um, I don't know what you're like, but you strike me as someone who also enjoys the hustle. Well, I think, yeah, that's a really interesting take on it. But, and, and actually that hit me when I fully exited. So in Jan 2020, we, we'd fully exited. And then like a sledgehammer, you get hit in the face and you're like, what do I do? And like, what? what the hell do I do yeah. now? Like, what brings me joy? And actually, when you sit down, when I've sat down and thought, what brings me joy? Business and the hustle brings me joy. Like, that is fun to me. So that's why we set up Horseplay and we Angel Invest. That's why we're doing a startup studio and we're going to launch new companies out of that. Because actually, business does bring you, bring me immense joy and excitement and passion. Um, and, you know, we'll be in a much easier should i say position to do it the second time round because yeah. you know we haven't got the financial cons worries let's say so i hope that we'll then enjoy it even more than we did the first time question for you what was the most expensive thing you bought when you exited that wasn't a house a car or a holiday i'm a very disappointing person to ask that question to uh, by nature i'm not that flashy at all um i'm the same mate i'm the same people do it all the time they're like tom what car have you got and i'm like an i10 I've got a Volvo. <laughs> it's like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, just not Which into I it. Yeah, um, I, do, I do have an incredibly spenny camper van. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I haven't really bought, I'll tell you what it is. And, and this was sort of financial freedom to me when I, I sat down and thought about what is financial freedom. And, it, and, and it, it's, it's the being in the privileged position to be able to, within reason, of course, buy what you want and help who you want without having to think about it. So 
that is nice holidays and flying club and you know that that type of thing or oh I fancy going to a nice restaurant I can just do it without thinking about it or oh I need to help my family with something or take them on holiday I can do that without thinking about it um so for me financial freedom was yeah doing what I want but within my own constrained means that I have you know I've never wanted to buy a boat or fly a helicopter everywhere but you know if I am somewhere on holiday and I want to do a helicopter trip I don't have to think about it so it's, yeah. it's sort of that that balance and that was always financial freedom to me I love that yeah I think um it's all spoken enough about when people talk about how much should you exit for right um and actually when you do the sums like it's not as much as you think because to get that point of where you have um, I refer to that as um, unconsidered spend. So being mm -hmm. a point where, you know, there's no considered spend up until the point of ridiculousness. Like, so yeah. you're at that point where you're not thinking about, like you have a house that you're happy with. You know, if you want to do something, you just do it. Yeah. yeah. Now we're not saying let's go and buy a Ferrari or buy a Rolex. Like that's twat money. If you ask me, like, it's just, yeah. it's, there's no value in that. If someone, I always think if someone else can buy it with cash, then it's worth nothing has to be yeah. something you have to earn. has to be some exclusivity yeah. to it. And um, I think like, I love that because actually when you add up those numbers about like that, you know, it's hard to buy a house that's worth more than, you know, it's hard to buy a house worth more than 3 million. It's hard to find that house. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah it is, right? You know I mean that you need? And then it's like, you think about how much money do you need in passive revenue to keep going? Like mm -hmm. once you put that into a fund and a return, like it's not, you, you don't need to be a billionaire. Yeah, no, you don't need no, it to buy yourself no. financial freedom forever and then for your family and so forth. And so I don't think enough people do those sums. I'm super, I didn't expect you to talk about it, but I think it's super powerful that you, you put it in there and did it. Um, greatest founder of all time, Tom from MySpace, 100%. Literally built a company, rode off into the sunset and doesn't even own a VC. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, really, I really admire that. In the current climate, marketing is hard. But do you know what isn't hard? making sure you never miss an episode of your favourite podcast. So tap the follow button on your podcast and you'll never miss out on the latest episodes of Unicorny or Marketing Difference. You can even go back and listen to our back catalogue of amazing episodes. If you do that, please leave us a review. It would mean so much. So tell me about founders number one. It's got to be, right? It's got to be. Founders the most important thing with the fund. What, what gets you excited next? So someone's coming, they're pitching to Nick Telson for his wisdom and his money. like. What do they need to say to get you excited? What's the story that's exciting? I think it's you've, you've genuinely found a slither of a gap in a market. Um, what, you know, what I don't love, and, and not to have an invested in some of these companies, is, oh, uh, this market has 10 competitors on you know, the, that, that grid, but, but we're doing it like this. And, and the we're doing it like this isn't that much different. Um, so I'm not, not saying that that can't succeed. So look at our own business. So a reservations platform wasn't revolutionary, but what we did was found the slither of the market, which was the bar market to start with. No bars had a reservation software. Um, so what we did was we knew a market that already existed, which OpenTable had showed. Um, but then we found the slither within that market, which was bars. And there are tens of thousands of bars and hundreds of thousands of bars if you go globally. Um, so that's what I really like to see is, well, this is the market and we have found this gap in the market that we 
know is a problem. We proved it's a problem, whether we've started selling our product or, you know, we've got legitimate testimonials from people about it. And we're the right team to go and execute on that problem. Um, you know, I see a lot of decks full stop and a lot of them are the difference between them and what's on the market isn't that huge. And I'm just like, ah, you know, I've seen five of these already. So basically I'm betting on you to execute better than those five other teams. And that's too much of a gamble for me. Yeah, that makes sense. I love that word, that slither um, and that gap in the market. And you articulated it really well. I guess so. Yeah. Once you have that combination, how big does that market need to be? Because that's a question that I always have. Like, what does that return need to be? Is uh, horseplay is it other people's money or just yours? Just ours. So you, so you don't need to, you know, it's not a venture model. You don't need to have a unicorn in there to make up for all the terrible decisions your other partners have made. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's not like, it's not yeah. still, because that's what venture is really, isn't it? Ultimately. Yeah. yeah. We're just, it's like, it's mistake covering for you. Like, how big does that market need to be? Because it's a really difficult question. When people go into it and they do a pitch, I remember I pitched to Ford Partners and um, with Stakester, and they um, they passed because the guy there at the time um, said, "We don't think yeah your your numbers aren't ambitious enough." And I was like, "What the fuck are you talking about, bro? Like these are massive." And then like we actually weirdly we 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 ironically we surpassed some of those numbers, but the um, I but like. It was mad to hear that they weren't big enough. I was like, you're going to make like at least 10x on your investment here. But he was like, it's just not enough. Yeah. I just had no idea. And then I started yeah. just, just inflating the numbers and making them bigger. And then the offers start rolling in. And it's mm -hmm. mad. It's mad. Yeah. Like, it's just, it's fiction. But like, how yeah. big does that need to be in order for it to be compelling? I think for us, um, you know, we do look for realism. And so, you know, the TAM slide, you know, I just oh. scroll straight past that. So if anyone's... Oh, tracking mate. me on doc send on their slide they'll see i spend about half a second on that slide For what we, we try and get in sub five million so we're early early stage so you know let's say we're investing at two million pre-money so we we want when we're looking at that it's can they sell for 50 million that's that's the sort of level we're looking at obviously if they surpass that great but you know if we're going to make 25x on that business great um but what we also will look at is who are they acquirable so i think that's quite important as well so like who who do we think it's a great question like how do you know that yeah yeah and it's difficult but you know it's okay well at least let's fantasize a bit here when we're looking at a deck so it's like who who do we think would buy you guys if 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 you're going to be worth 50 million um and then obviously you've got to understand that people need to be able to buy you. So, so everyone to us, for example, was saying, oh, well, Time Out are going to buy you. Like Time Out haven't made a profit in like 20 years. Um, so we knew Time Out would never... Have they sold their building? Uh, God knows, God knows. I hope they have. It's probably, probably <laughs> the only way they'll make any money, right? <laughs> yeah. So but we knew, we were like, well, Time Out can't afford us. So that's why we would look yeah. at OpenTable and the more software players. Um, and it was a software house that eventually bought us. Um, so that's what we will look at is, can this be worth 50 million? Um, what are the comparables in your space to understand what revenues and EBITs you need to be doing to sell for 50 million? And who would be your potential acquirers? Um, and also, 
to, to reach 50 million, we need to understand that 50% of everything will go right. So to be worth a 50 million pound company, you can't have it that 100% needs to go to plan, if you see what I mean. Yeah. So it's like, okay, well, we can sell to 10,000 customers and we need 9,000 to be worth 50 million. Like that would be too close to the grain for me. So it would be like, okay, well, let's say you're, you're, you're targeting 10,000 customers. Let's say you actually are going to achieve 6,000 customers. What does the business then look like if you achieve 6,000 customers? And yeah. how many do you have to sell to to be worth 50 million? Um, so it's what a VC will look at, but just instead of a billion, we're saying 50 million. I like that a lot. That's really interesting. And also it's a really good uh, mindset for a, for a founder to be trying to figure out those numbers as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you, um, you did a really interesting post recently around um, why people should start companies. I liked a lot. And I want to talk about it a bit more. Like, what is a good reason for starting a, for starting a company? Like, why did you start Design My Night? What was your, like, what was it you were working towards? What was the reason you did it? And what made you do it? Because you did it for five, seven years? Uh, 10 years, the full journey. 10. Um, yeah. I mean, for us, it was twofold. It was one we knew we didn't want to work in a corporate for the rest of our life. Like we both had very good jobs. What were you doing? I was doing marketing at L'Oreal and Andrew was at Accenture. You know, I was offered to go to Paris and I could have been an MD of a brand and I could have had an extremely successful career at L'Oreal. Um, yeah. But it's just not what I wanted. It didn't get my juices flowing. Um, so we both realized that we wanted to, to start our own business for the fun of it was part of it because you're worth it <laughs> i ended up actually interviewing at l'oreal and if anyone said that in an interview i was like no you're not getting the job unfortunately oh what i wouldn't get the job are you joking me damn it that's my career over it's my dreams no. have been ruined it's no and then the other one was money which a lot of people don't own up to enough but we no. wanted financial freedom in our 30s um and let's be honest unless you come from whatever very wealthy stock or win the lottery or something, one of the hardest but best ways to become financially free is set up your own business. So yeah. it was both of those things. We were very aligned, like he's my best mate from uni. We're very tight. Um, and luckily, everything we wanted, we were always very aligned on, which helps. Yeah, I think that's really good. And I really appreciate your, your, um, your honesty on that. Not a lot of people talk about it. Yeah, not enough people talk about it. You know, there's um, I think there's lots of good reasons for doing it, but that's definitely one. I always say that um, founders are just the most the pe the people who are just ultimately unemployable. Mm. Yeah, yeah, because like yeah, I d I don't know what you're like when you work for a corporate. Like yeah, we can go through those ranks very quickly, but the reason we're doing that is because we're getting bored. Yeah, and, and I've always sort of fantasized about going back to L'Oreal with my new mindset. Oh, and uh, which I wouldn't, but I thought. If I did go back, what, how would I do it differently? Um, with everything I've learned from being a founder, what would I do differently? And would a company like L'Oreal allow me to do it differently? And I think that latter would be no. Um, mm. So I think that's why it's very tough for someone with a founder mindset to, yeah, to progress quickly how they want within a corporate. I think it's super intimidating for a, um, for a business to employ a founder because you know, your perspective of everything in the business you have a perspective on, whereas before you didn't. You yeah. have a perspective on, I'm a sales guy, like you have a perspective of sales, you know, yeah. and then all of a sudden now you have a, a genuine perspective on product and yeah. marketing and finance. Yeah. You have a perspective on everything. And that's really threatening 
you know, uh, because the only other person in that business who has that maybe is C-suite, right? Yeah. If you've got some chump at the bottom of the mid rank who has that, it's like, oh God, and they might be right. Yeah, <laughs> you'll have a lot of courage to hire an ex-founder, I think. Tell me, so when you look back at your time at, at two, I want to hear both of these. When you look back at your time at Design My Night and your time now investing, what are two mistakes that you see commonly? You you committed yourself, but one that you see commonly now that you wish people didn't do. From a from a founder point of view, um, in the early stages, being pulled in different directions by shiny objects. Um, so for us in the early years, um, when Design My Night didn't have software and was a B two C site finding its feet, we would be offered these different partnership opportunities. Um, we were constantly contacted by people wanting to take it abroad. Um, and I think we gave too much bandwidth in the early years to all these different opportunities that made us lose focus on, you know, what our own strategy was. Um, and actually, you know, partnerships can be very good, but a lot of them don't really deliver what you expect them to deliver, um, at least in the early years. Um, so they're a, they're a big waste of time for us. We also, which a lot of people don't know because it didn't last very long, was during our uh, early years of Design My Night, um, Groupon hit the scene. Um, and I don't blame us for this because it was an interesting pivot at the time. And a pivot is to software is eventually what, what made us. But we set up a company or a, an arm called Design My Night Deals which was basically a Groupon for the bar industry. So it would be like, okay, this cocktail bar, if we sell 50 tickets, you'll get your cocktail for four pounds instead of eight pounds, um, which made sense at the time because Groupon was flying. Um, but it, 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 it cost us money. We had to build the technology to do that deal site. And it just totally took our eye off the ball from what Design My Night Core was meant to be. Um, so yeah, I think that was an experience from us of just being like, oh, that looks exciting. Let's do that. Oh, we could do that. Let's do that. Um, so I think that that was a big lesson for us. Um, and the same, the same with angel investing is just taking your time on stuff. Like as we alluded to at the start about an, um, a founder giving an angel FOMO, like angels are just normal people that also get FOMO. Um, and to get pulled along um, by a founder because you don't want to miss out is the worst way to invest. Um, so I think with all the practices we've put in place since then to analyze what makes a good business, back in the earlier years, I think we would have got pulled along a lot easier um, by the founder's enthusiasm, which is not the way to invest. I like that a lot. I like that. I really do. And last one, what is Nick Telson's one piece of advice for every single founder? I'll tell you what mine is, physical health and mental health, they're connected. People forget that. Got to keep yourself healthy. Yeah. I would say this is what I find mad. is like people think, this is the thing about productivity that drives me mad, is that why people don't, because you're Hika, aren't you? Yes. Yeah, you did Hika. Yeah, I've given everyone in the business Hika. And, uh, and I always say to people like, why people are worrying about their productivity and stuff like that? People always like, how do I make my team more productive? I'm like, make them fitter. Yeah. yeah give them yeah. more energy yeah and then they'll do more okay yeah <laughs> right yeah that's the problem isn't pomodoro the problem is they're <laughs> tired all the time yeah get them some exercise and some some stuff from hika yeah i think that is like yeah i think looking after yourself 
and I think understanding in, in when you employ a lot of people that that does look different to different people. So some people might want to go and run where that is nightmare for some people, but someone mm. might want to do yoga or have a massage or do gong therapy or something. But whatever someone does to make themselves feel better is valid. But yeah, I think that's something we were a bit bad at Design My Night because it was the, uh, you know, that was when all this, the well-being wasn't. So we really looked after our team, but in a much more social way. Yeah. So we were out a lot. The I office bet. was super fun. Um, we were all mates, like really mates. Andrew and I were like big brothers to the, the team. Um, so we just all had like a hell of a lot of fun. Um, so I don't know if we would have got away with the stuff we did now, just having a lot of fun with your team. I think we sort of lost that ethos a bit now with like obviously remote working and putting well-being before everything else. I think everyone just takes themselves a little bit too seriously. Like if you're, if you have a team that they're going to give up a corporate job to come and join you, it's got to be fun as well. So I think people can't forget that as founders is you're meant to have some fun with it, but also your team have to just love the roller coaster with you. You strike me as someone who's a bit of an extrovert, you know, and also like you, you create a company that is built around going wild and having a great time. Right. So like you must love going out and having a good time. So how are you dealing with like the whole work from home thing? Uh, funnily enough, I'm a introverted extrovert. So actually right. people that don't know me will often think I'm an extrovert. Um, but it takes a lot of energy for me to be extroverted. Um, right, and okay. actually I love like going for a walk by myself with a podcast or just holding myself up for the weekend at home. So actually for me, like the whole, but when I was founder of Design My Night, uh, you know, a lot of my team wouldn't have known that, you know, I was always the one getting us all out and I was in charge of all of our parties and all of that. But it took a lot of mental and physical energy for me to get up to that level to, to do it, um, which is another reason why we sold. I was just knackered, like exhausted mentally and physically. But I've always, like, fortunately enough, I haven't had to work with a team from home because we exited Jan 2020. So I haven't had to do that. I think I would have found it very difficult. While I love, I love the introverted side of me being at home, Design My Night wouldn't have been successful if we didn't have an office. I think our office was just such a hub for people were hooking up. They were becoming best mates. They lived together um we had fun um it was a real like vibe in that office um mm. and and yeah i feel really sorry for founders now like how to recreate that digitally i think is near on impossible um while i also then see the benefits of remote working as well so i think how we did it without even realizing it design my night if anyone needed to work from home we wouldn't question it so if someone was like, oh, I'm feeling a bit ill, can I work from home? Or the plumber's coming, can I work from home? Or oh, I'm just not feeling that great, can I work from home this week? We would always say yes, while keeping the office. So I think, you know, that was pre-COVID. So I, I think that way of working should be the way forward, that we have an office and you're not expected to come in, but we think it's for the good of you and the team if you do come in. But look, if you need to work from home a day or two days or a week or 
if you need a little break and you need to work from home for a few weeks, fine. But I don't want to yeah. lose that office culture. I love that. Yeah, I've just invested in a, a company called Flexer who came on the show. Um, yes, I know. And yeah. and yeah, the sensational business. Yeah, um, great founders, and they. Um, yeah, I think that it's really important. Flexible working needs to be the future, not work from home, you know, or work from the office. It's genuinely flexible. Yeah. I think yeah. most of us, like you and me, like we've been in a hyper-privileged situation where we've worked for tech companies where that's kind of been the deal for a long time anyway, uh, yeah. but it needs to be spread out to everyone. Um, Nick, this has been wild. You've been so great. Like you're such a, a font of information and wisdom. And look, I'm so glad that you're doing what you do. Thanks on behalf of the startup community for your post on LinkedIn. Um, let's do a quick plug for your show. So Pitch Deck is, we're series three now, actually. It's um, where seed uh, angel um, founders come on, pitch for three minutes to myself and a very experienced angel or micro VC. Um, we then do a live Q&A with them. So we quiz the deck, we quiz their pitch. Um, and then the, the last section of the podcast, myself and the investor will just discuss the opportunity, what we like, what we don't like, what we think they need to do. So it's sort of lifting the, lifting the bonnet for founders on how angel investors will critique a pitch, um, what we look for. Um, also interesting to hear other people, other founders pitch. Um, so yeah, if you just search for um, Pitch Deck, someone has copied me and done Pitch Deck podcasts with very similar branding. So <laughs> it's nowhere near as good as mine, obviously. I think they've bottled it Absolutely after no series one. no one um but look for pitch deck and then look for my names on it in the intro um but yeah it's, it's really good fun and we've had some great insight and i've invested in some of the companies that have been on the show as well so it's great i'm a fan i listen to the show i think it's great all right thanks for coming on buddy cheers i've enjoyed it thank you